Today's Bible reading comes from Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying for the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Dave, thank you very much for reading. Do please keep that passage open in front of you. As has already been said, today uh, begins the first of a four-part series in the book of Jonah. Today, looking at chapter 1, we're, we're going to stop today at the cliffhanger, verse 16, and uh, pick up Jonah and the great fish uh, in verse 17 onwards next week. Well, we've already prayed that uh, the Lord would speak to us this morning. So let's come together to, uh, to these verses now. And let me ask uh, a question as we begin this book. Let me ask, what do you expect from God? What do you expect from him? So it may be you've been a Christian for a long time. What have you come to expect from him? Have you found him predictable? Has he been predictable or unpredictable to you, for you? If you're a new Christian, if you're a young Christian, what have you been led to expect from this God? As you look ahead to days, months, years following him, what can you expect from him? Well, now it seems uh, a long time ago since that opening ceremony, 10 days ago. 
And there was lots of debate beforehand what, what would feature, what would happen. We all hoped that pastoral scene wouldn't continue for five hours, but we didn't know. But by the time it ended, by the time the curtain fell on the opening ceremony, well, there was no doubt, there was no puzzle as to what to expect from the architect of that ceremony, Danny Boyle. No one was debating what he loved, what moved him, what he desired. We knew at the end of that ceremony that he loved all things British and he loved music. There was no debate about that. The debate was over. Well, as as has already been alluded to this morning, in chapter 1, verse 9, of of this uh, chapter we're looking at today, the big truth about God is that he is the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the lands. Christians all around the world say the Nicene Creed together, and the first line of it is, the most basic line is, well, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. But the question is, what do you expect of God, knowing that he is, as we just sung, the author of creation? What do you expect of God, knowing that he made the sea and the lands? Well, if you uh, know this book of Jonah and the Great Fish, you know that it's not not so much a book about Jonah and the fish as it is a book about God, an apology for God and his character, a defense of his actions and what he's like. And today, as we'll see, the Lord is revealed above all as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. But that only takes us so far, just as a creed only takes us so far. Because at the end of chapter 1, at the end of verse 16, all the human characters in the book, well, they could sign up a doctrinal statement in which they say, yes, God is the God of sea and dry lands. Jonah could do that. He says that in chapter 1, verse 9. By the end of the chapter, the sailors could do it, including the captain of the ship. But they they manifest completely different responses because they've got completely different expectations of the God of sea and dry lands. Jonah runs away and the sailors offer sacrifice to this God. I've tried to summarize those two points on uh, the back of your service sheets. And they're points that come out right at the climax of chapter 1, particularly from verses 9 onwards. We're to see Jonah's running Well, that's folly given who this Lord is, and the sailor's worship is fitting. But uh, we need to follow this story to its climax, because chapter 1 tells us what to expect of God on its own terms. It's a chapter all about the sea and the dry land. So if you you get the film rights to make the film of Jonah, or if you're writing a script that uh, you want to sell to Hollywood to make the film of Jonah, do not let the producers change the setting. Don't let them persuade you to, you know, cast this, recast it in inner city London. It won't work. It won't work. I mean, in many ways, the ideal sermon on Jonah chapter 1 would be a bit like the sermon in Moby Dick. If you know that book, Ishmael, he's in port. Before he sets out to sea, he goes to a little chapel. And true to form, the minister at the port is speaking on Jonah. And as he speaks on uh, on the book of Jonah, you feel like you're in a ship. He seems like he's the captain of a ship. He's swaying to and fro. He feels like, it feels like you're in a storm. And in many ways, that would be ideal. I don't think I'll achieve it this morning. And you might be glad of that. But you see, chapter one speaks all about the God of sea and lands. And it does so in terms of a narrative about the sea and the land. A man who leaves one part of the lands, Joppa, to go to another part of the land, Tarshish. And there's a high, there's a storm on the high seas in the middle. So the sea and the land in chapter 1, they're not incidental props. They're the place where we've got to be taken this morning to learn about what to expect from God. 
Well, come with me, first of all, to verses 1 to 8. They're the the opening two scenes, if you like, in this chapter. I'll talk us through those verses, make some comments, but we're building up to verse 9 and following, where we reach the climax. I'll say a bit more about what this chapter means for us uh, today. So then, to verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Well, one of the reasons why we read this book, not as fiction, but as history, and I'll speak more about that particularly next week when we think of Jonah and the fish. But one of the reasons we're to see real history in this book is there in verses 1 and 2. Jonah is an historical person. If you read 2 Kings, we discover he is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He speaks and he prophesies in the reign of Jeroboam. And also in verse 2, in 800 BC, life in Israel was lived in the looming shadow of their northern neighbor, Assyria. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. So Nineveh in verse 2, it's not a storybook place. It's a real threat. We'll say more in verse 2, but at the very least, verse 2, do you see the command of the Lord? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. That is at least a call to go to the heartland of your nemesis. Like saying to someone in South Korea, go to Pyongyang. Go to the heartland of your biggest threat. And verse 3, I don't know if you noticed, but it tells us more than just that Jonah went in the opposite direction. Of course, he did do that, Tarshish. From what we know, it's a distant port. But more importantly, is the phrase repeated twice in verse 3, he fled from the Lord's. You see, it won't do to say that uh, Jonah is fleeing from the Ninevites. They are a barbarous people. If you read accounts of them, if you go to the British Museum, you can see depictions of what they were like. What they did to their victims was barbarous. But verse 3 says that Jonah is not afraid of the Ninevites. No, he's more afraid of the Lord's. He flees from the Lord's. Which raises the question, what, what does Jonah expect of his gods? that he's now become not a a God to obey, but a God to flee from. And this is so important, I want to give us a preview of it. So if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 2 for a moment. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where we discover that the reason Jonah flees back here in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 3, is because The Lord has for him become a bit like the dispenser of a cosmic poison. It's called grace. So the context of chapter 4, verse 2, the Ninevites, not to spoil the story, have repented, they've turned back. God has shown them mercy. And Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. And then remarkably, he goes on, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to to die than to live. So Jonah flees to Tarshish, not because he's afraid of what the Ninevites will do to him, he's afraid of what God will do for the Ninevites. Now, you could say that's just raised another question, a harder question. Why does Jonah think that God's grace, his mercy to another, is so poisonous to him? Well, we'll have to answer that question over the course of these four chapters. But let me say one thing that that I hope will help us feel the force of Jonah's dilemma. You see, Jonah is not just simply a racist. He's not just exclusive. He's not just somebody who thinks that the world revolves around Israel, the world revolves around him, and uh, 
Forget about the rest of the world. That is not just Jonah's issue. Jonah is a true prophet. We're led to believe that. Nothing leads us uh, away from anything else in, in two kings. Jonah is a true prophet. But why does he expect that life given to another, to Assyria, to Nineveh, will mean death to him? Well, the history is important here because Israel in two kings is on the slide and Assyria is on the rise. And Israel on the slide, it's not just political. That always reflects for God's people in the Old Testament their spiritual state. And so the announcements of God in chapter 1, verse 2 feels to Jonah like the end of the road for him, for Israel, for God's people. It does feel like death to him, even though it's life to others. Well, we will come back to that, but let's move on to scene two in chapter one, verse four. The crisis deepens. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So it's no doubt that uh, the Lord's doing, the storm is. He's brought it about. He's brought the great wind. He's caused the, the violent storm. And that adjective, great winds, that's that ad- adjective, great, it's going to follow us all through this book. We've already had the great city Nineveh. Now we get a great wind. Then we'll get a great storm. People will experience great fear in this chapter. Then in chapter 2, we'll discover a great fish. And the very last words in our English translation, it's the great city Nineveh. And great is important because it's going to be a key word in God justifying his actions when we get to chapter 4. But back here we find that uh, the great storm is such that even the sailors are afraid. And in their terror, verse 5, the sailors cry out to their own gods. Any god they know of, they cry out to. They throw the cargo overboard. And it's supposed to be ironic The only bit of cargo they need to throw overboard is Jonah. They don't know that yet. Now, it's said there are uh, no atheists on a plane. And there are no atheists on a sinking ship either. Each cries to his own gods. Except, verse 5, Jonah. He had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Well, it's so odd that this hardened captain says, How can you sleep? How can you sleep at a time like this? But we've already had a hint as to why. Jonah can sleep because it's as though he's got the sentence of death over him anyway. He can sleep through a storm of death because, well, it's his choice really is death or death. That's what the command of God in verse 3, in verse 2 rather, has felt like. And then they they pepper these questions at him in verse 8, which leads us to the climax of the story in verse 9. And we reach a turning point here. The sailors think this worsens the crisis, but actually this is the turning point in the whole chapter, and it's the turning point from them. It is the key, and it shines a light on the rest of this chapter in the two ways I've tried to summarize on our sheets. There are two sides of the same coin, two responses to the same God, and it all depends on what you expect of the God of sea and lands. Well, let's see first how foolish it is for Jonah to run from the God of sea and lands. Jonah answers, verse 9. I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the lands. So he says, I am a Hebrew. It's how he would address people from other nations so they, they know where he's from. And he says, I worship the God of heaven. A clear indicator that you've been crying out to your own God. I worship the God of all. The God who made the heavens and the sea and the lands. 
So it's no surprise that the the sailors say, in effect, "How, how foolish, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord. But what were you thinking? And we see in their question the folly of Jonah. It's foolish on many levels. I mean, think about it, the, the, the confession of verse 9. Well, what does it leave? God, uh, let's see, God is the God of heaven. Uh, he's the God who made the sea. He's the God who made the lands. And you've fled from him. You've provoked him, and now you flee from him. But his reign, his rule covers everything. You can't escape from him. It's logically, physically impossible. What were you thinking? Hence their fear in verse 10, Jonah's folly in running. But his folly is deeper than that. His folly is not just doing the, uh, the logically or physically impossible and trying to flee from a God who is everywhere, who has made everything. It's deeper than that. It's what he expects from such a God. Do you see he runs away in verse 3? We've seen because we had that preview from chapter 4. God's command has felt like death to him. It makes him want to die rather than live. He no doubt thinks that when he's in the ship and God sent this storm, well, this is God just killing him off just as he planned to do anyway. That's why he can sleep in a, so- in a storm of death. Even when he offers himself to the sailors to be thrown overboard, he no doubt thinks that this is the end of the road from him. His only surprise, perhaps, is that God doesn't just wipe out the sailors along with him. But in that, you see, Jonah has become very unlike his gods. Jonah ought to know better because of his confession of verse 9. He says that God is the God of heaven. He made the sea and the land. We began by thinking about how it's no puzzle anymore for people to work out what moves Danny Boyle. He loves all things British and he loves music. That's That much is clear from what he's done. It shouldn't be a puzzle to Jonah what to expect from a God who makes the sea and the lands. In fact, you could go back to Lesson 101, Genesis chapter 1. The curtain rose on all of creation history. And in that song in Genesis 1, we witness a God who delights to bring life from nothing, life from the chaos of the sea. The God who created the sea and the dry land, well, he did so, making it full of creatures and life, full of variety and fruitfulness. This is the God who made the sea and the land. He is the God of life, not the God who desires to bring death. So let me come to us uh, for a moment. Uh, the, uh, the traditional sermon on Jonah 1 might go something like this. Uh, we see here in Jonah 1 that uh, Jonah is a prophet. He should know better, but he runs from God. How are you running from God? You must be running from God. How are you doing it? And it's not, I think, the point, save for this. Jonah runs away because of what he expects from God. And behind all our obedience or disobedience will be what we expect from this God of sea and lands. As though every promise we ever receive from God, every command we ever receive from him, well, it goes through a filter, and it all depends what we expect of God, whether it produces obedience or disobedience. Jonah, we see here, runs from God because he expects death. He expects that God is unpredictable. He could work death or he could work life, and it seems that he's working death here. It is, if you like, that Jonah thinks uh, God's command, it's a bit like a spiked drink. You never really know what to predict. It looks good, looks gracious, looks life-giving, but it could actually be spiked with death, with poison. 
But you see, because of the God is the God of sea and land, everything he says to his people is seasoned with life. It could only be that way. He is the God who brings life. This is an unbreakable principle for us. God will only speak words to his people designed to bring life. Someone said to me recently, it feels as though God is about to pull the rug from under me. But that is not the gods of sea and land. God purposes to bring life, not death. Here is a God to trust to put in the driving seat of our life, the driving seat of our family life. This is a God to move closer to, not to move further from. In fact, we're supposed to know from chapter 1 that it can only do you good to come closer to this God. It will never harm you to come closer to this God. You won't prosper your life by moving away from him, by by keeping him at arm's length. You'll not live a full life by having less of this God, but by having more of him. Do not be content with a little of this God. Not least because the text, I think, drops hints about the implications, the cost of moving away from him or moving closer to him. To entrust yourself to this Lord is like choosing life. God is life itself. To keep your distance is to let go of life. So we observe as we go through the chapter that Jonah becomes more and more careless and indifferent of other people's lives. It's hard to care for other people's lives, truly, to care for their welfare in the highest possible sense when you move from this God. Do you see, it's unmistakable that Jonah on the run has become unlike this God's. We read in chapter 4, verse 2, that our God, he he relents from sending calamity. But Jonah, in chapter 1, verse 7, they cast the lots. Jonah's brought this calamity on them. Without a second thought, he's gone onto that boat and he's put their lives in danger. Without a thought. So don't expect that we're going to be able to prize other people's lives, to protect the lives of those we care for if we move away from this God of life. And more than that, if we move from this God's, we're to know from this chapter that we forfeit the grace that could be ours. It's why uh, Jonah on the run, he's portrayed as a man on the the journey downwards. He goes down, verse 3, he went down to Joppa. Verse 5, he went down below deck. That word for down below, it's, it's the inner recesses. He lay down, he went into a deep sleep. He's on the way down. It's a journey we'll see that will end at the bottom of the sea. He'll journey all all the way down to death, so to speak, in chapter 2. And that can be our only, only trajectory when we move from the gods of sea and lands, for he is the God of life. So if we've decided just quietly or functionally that this God, this uh, gods of the Bible, deserves only some of our thoughts, our affections, our resources, deserves some of ourselves. Well then, let me ask from this chapter, what, what then is your alternative philosophy of life? Well, this chapter would say you, you do not have a philosophy of life apart from this God. It is as foolish as expecting to, to flee from the God of sea and land by traveling from land across the sea. He is the giver of all life. And uh, that could only be because, like Jonah, if we think like that, we've created a God who who sort of divides his power between giving life and spoiling life. That God is a great cosmic spoiled sport is one of the most 
is one of the worst misrepresentations of this God. He is for life and he is against death. Jonah runs because he thinks God brings death. But uh, chapter 1 lays before us another way. It's the sailors. They tell us what we should expect from the God who made the sea and the dry land. We're supposed to see that everything the sailors do, culminating in their worship, well, it's entirely fitting. They've got it right. Now, of course, there's a, there's a surprising irony to that. Jonah, the prophet, who should know better, gets it wrong. The sailors, pagan idolaters, who cry out to a God they doesn't exist, a God they don't know, um, they've got it right. They if you like, are much more like the Lord's. We see that even as early as uh, verse 6. The captain went to Jonah and said, how can you sleep? Call out to gods. Maybe he'll take note of us and we will perish. Even in his ignorant speculations, this captain is closer to the truth. He, he hopes, expects maybe, that there is a God whom Jonah worships who can actually rescue him from death. A God who gives life from death. And more than that, verse 7, Jonah's brought calamity on them. We've seen that. He's been reckless with their lives. But do you see uh, in verse 11 onwards, the last thing they are is careless about life. The sailors are not indifferent to other people's lives. Do you see that? Uh, Jonah says, yes, you need to throw me into the sea and the sea will calm down for you. But they try one last time to row back to lands. They know it's futile because the God who's against them, he is the God of sea and dry land. But then in their cry in verse 14, they show us exactly what to expect from this God. Expect a God who prizes life, a God who preserves life. Verse 14, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. They know that uh, a God who made the sea and the land, he must be a God who prizes life, a God who preserves life who doesn't desire death, but desires to save people from death. And then verse 16, Jonah's thrown overboard, and the sea at last grows calm. And at this, the men, the sailors, they fear the Lord, and it's the fear, not of pure terror, but it's the fear of worship. And it could could feel primitive, this tale, this story in chapter 1. It could feel very primitive. Sailors out on the high seas, calling out to their own God, pagan idols, Then God calms the storm, and here they are worshipping, offering sacrifices to the God of sea and land. It could feel very primitive. It could feel a long way from uh, central London, from sophisticated, technological London. It could feel a far cry from our lives. But as I said at the start, it has to be this way for a reason. We had to come out from the land to the middle of the sea to have this lesson. In a sense, it's deliberately primitive, because we're to see that there's nothing more appropriate, more fitting than people of the sea and the land worshipping the God of the sea and the land. God's big purpose to bring Gentile people, to bring people from all over the world, as we heard this morning, that uh, this gathering of nations, it's like a picture of what God is doing in the world. He is bringing people from every nation to worship him. And we're to see that that is not inappropriate. It's not uh, inappropriate proselytizing. It's not imposing a religion on other people. It's the most appropriate thing in the world. There's great symmetry here. People of the sea and dry land, they worship the God of the sea and the land. Jonah thinks it's a 
a cosmic mismatch. You know, he can imagine people that he just couldn't see them and the Lord together. He couldn't see the Lord being gracious to them. But we're meant to understand there is no such thing as a cosmic mismatch. After Jonah 1, the threshold of whether someone should worship God, the threshold of whether God should convert a people is simple. We only need to ask two questions. Are they a person of the sea or the land? In other words, are they an inhabitant of the earth? And is God the God of sea and lands? Well, if that's the case, then we have to say, well, creature, meet your creator. That is so appropriate and fitting. It's meant to be. Which does, I think, force us to draw lines at a different level. So as we look around us, we draw all sorts of lines based on culture, religion. We think it wouldn't be appropriate for them to worship our gods. We couldn't quite see that happening because it's such a different culture, such a different language, so different from this God's. But no, the basic questions from this basic story are, are they people of the sea or the lands? Are they inhabitants of the earth? Well, then it is appropriate that they come to this God, that the creature looks to the God to give them life, looks to their creator God for life. It is basic and primitive, but we had to come to this story to see it. And so as we leave Jonah chapter 1, God's people need to know what to expect from the God of sea and life. He orchestrates everything for life. So if you like, with those spectacles, just flick back over Jonah chapter 1 now. So that command that looked like death to Jonah in verse 2, well, it was purposed to bring life to the Ninevites. We saw that. The Lord sent a great wind, verse 4. Was this to destroy Jonah and the sailors? Well, well, no, it wasn't. It only led to the sailors, their lives being saved, them worshipping the Lord's life, true life. The creatures worshipping their creator. Well, is Jonah collateral? He's left sinking to the bottom of the sea. Well, we'll see next week that even that is purposed for life. So if we want to divine how, how God is at work in our lives, in our world, well, this chapter says very clearly God orchestrates everything. He can do that. He is the powerful creator. But he orchestrates everything for the giving of life. Paul preaches in Acts 17 of the very same thing. He says there to the Gentiles, he says, God has arranged the exact times and places where people live that they might reach out and find him. We're to expect of this God, a God who brings life and not death. Now, it's important we have those expectations in place this week. Next week, we see that Jonah reaches a new low. And if you like, we travel down to the bottom of the sea with him. And from there, we see that the God that Jonah doesn't really want in chapter 1 is the God that he needs and that we need desperately whoever we are, because we're people of the sea and land, we need our creator, the God who made the sea and lands. Let me pray for us as we close. Our Father God, we praise you that you are our faithful and good creator. We praise you that you give life and breath and everything else to us. And we praise you that you orchestrate all things to give life, that people might reach out and find you and know you. And we pray, Father God, that we would go into this world with eyes to look around us and to look up to you, knowing that you are this God. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.